we're in the final week of our study in 1 Thessalonians, and as we've mentioned every week, 1 Thessalonians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he was a part of planting that is a new church filled with new believers who are trying to figure out, um, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus, and, and what does it mean to live out our faith in really, really challenging times, and uh, almost as soon as the church had gotten started, it faced all kinds of persecution. And uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas, the three guys that started the church, had to leave after two or three months uh, because of the persecution. And so Paul writes a series of letters back to the church to try to help them grow in their faith and to handle the persecution that they are facing. And 1 Thessalonians is one of those letters. And today we're wrapping up uh, uh, First Thessalonians uh, by looking at chapter five. Chapter five, there's only five chapters in this book. And uh, we're looking at chapter five day, the last chapter. And Paul starts the chapter by talking about something that uh, makes a lot of us really uncomfortable, <laughs> to be quite honest, when we talk about it. He starts by talking about the judgment of God. And it's in response to some questions that these new believers are asking about the future and when is Jesus going to return and is God a God of judgment and, and is God just and if he's just, is he going to deal with the injustice that we're facing at the hands of those who are persecuting us? Like all of those kind of questions. These new believers trying to figure all of this stuff out. And so Paul addresses uh, a number of those issues in this last chapter. And this is how he starts. It says, now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I wish, I wish every single person that has like written a book, written an article, gotten people all stirred up about like, hey, we know when it's going to happen. Like, we know what's going to happen. Here it is. Here are all the things. Here's what's happening here. It's happening here. It's happening here. That means it's going to happen. Like, we're just right there. It's just like going to happen now. I wish they would reread this passage again. Because what Paul is saying is that it's going to come, the end of time, when Christ returns, like a thief in the night. Which means you will not know and you will be surprised. Like you won't know that it's going to happen. You will be surprised. going to come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety. In other words, when they are least expecting it, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, the phrase there, the day of the Lord, is one of the ways that the Bible talks about Jesus' return, about judgment day. That day when Christ returns, uh, time will come to an end, we'll be brought face to face with our sin, all of that. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes it this way. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things uh, while in the body, whether good or bad. So the Bible is really clear about the fact that we are responsible and accountable for our actions. It's actually a part of our dignity. It's a part of our worth as human beings. It means that what you do matters. Like it has impact. Uh, it either has a positive impact or it has a negative impact, but it matters. And at some level, all of us want a God who is a God of justice. Like we want that. We see all this injustice, all of this wrong in the world, 
And it provokes, I think within most of us, a kind of holy anger like within us. Like we want to do something about it. We, we want the unjust to be brought to justice. Like that's just kind of inherent within our spirit. And we want that same justice for those of us that believe in God and believe that God is active and at work in this world. We want that same injustice to provoke a holy anger within God as well. We want God to respond. We want God to be just. We want God to respond justly. That if God is not just, he would not be good. It's actually God's love that leads to his justice, that leads to his judgment. He loves us so much that any act that does harm to his creation provokes God's wrath. I mean, that's how much he cares about us. Like, here's the deal. We want a God who judges. We just don't want a God who judges us. Like, we are like totally fine talking about a God who judges all that unjust stuff out there. Like, we say, yeah, we want a God who's just with all that. We want injustice to be dealt with in this world. We just don't want a God who judges us. We don't want his judgment directed toward us. We get really, really uncomfortable talking about that. We don't want his holy anger, his wrath directed toward us. But sometimes, sometimes we are the ones who are unjust. Sometimes we're the ones who are uncaring or self-centered or selfish or self-serving or whatever. Sometimes we're the ones who say things or do things that, that harm his creation. Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. So, so when we talk about injustice, when we talk about brokenness, we talk about all that in the world, Scripture's like really clear, like this is not an us and them situation. This is not us talking about them. This is not us pointing a figure at them. This is, this is all of us. We are all part of this broken, sinful world. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, which means that God's judgment is not just directed out there to all of those bad people in the world. God's judgment is also directed to us. That on the day of the Lord, we too will be brought face to face with the ugliness of our sin. So on that day, like how will we stand? Like if God is a just God, if we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if judgment day is coming, if the reality is coming, like how will we stand? How will we endure God's judgment when absolutely everything we've done, everything we've said is laid bare? And Paul tells us, and this is what he says. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So Paul says that on that day, that not only will we see the ugliness of our sin or be reminded of the ugliness of our sin, but not in a sense that it brings shame not in a way that it brings guilt, not in a way that it brings remorse in that moment, because in that moment, not only will we see the ugliness of our sin, we will see the beauty of God's grace. We will be overwhelmed by the beauty of God's grace that overwhelms any guilt or shame. We will be aware 
of our sin that Jesus has died for, but we will be overwhelmed by God's grace. We will see how unbelievably good God is. We will not be destroyed by God's judgment because Jesus has already taken that judgment onto himself and died for it. We will not be destroyed because our judge is also our savior. I just want to say that again. Our judge is also our savior. Paul says on that day, on that day, all of that will be revealed. And because of this, Paul says our identity right now, because of everything that Christ has done for us on the cross, because of the grace that that manifests itself over all of the ugliness of our sin, Paul says, our identity has changed now. He says, but you, in verse four, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons and daughters of the light and sons and daughters of the day. We do not belong to the night. We do not belong to the darkness. The Bible talks about this age as being the the darkness of this age. But it says that when Christ returns, it will be a, a bright new day. There will be no more darkness. But in the meantime, the time between now and Christ's return, the darkness and the light, Scripture says, they overlap. The darkness is still here, but we who are in Christ belong to the light. And through us, God brings light into this dark world. And I've talked about this before. I love this way of talking about we are called to punch holes in the darkness and let the light of God come in. Like that's our job description as followers of Jesus is to be whole punchers, to punch holes holes in the darkness and allow the light of heaven to shine on earth. It's, it's to be a part of heaven coming to earth, that that's what we are called to do. We are called to bring heaven to earth. So what are some of the markers of being people who belong to the light? That's what Paul basically spends the rest of the chapter talking about. So we're just going to unpack it real quickly here. First, he says, people who belong to the light are fully awake. They are sober and fully awake, but he uses those terms in a different kind of way. Verse six, he says, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, Paul is using drunkenness and sleep as a kind of metaphor here. He's saying that those who belong to the light have become attentive to God's activity in the world. They have awakened to God's activity in the world. Those who are followers of Christ, those who are in Christ, those who are belong to the light, they have awakened to God's activity in the world. 
They are living woke lives in the truest sense of that term. But Paul says children of the night don't see where God is working in the world and, and in their lives. It's like they're, it's like they're sleeping. It, it, it's like they're in a drunken stupor. God is at work doing amazing things in the world. God is at work doing amazing things in their lives, but they can't see it. They, they are not attentive to it. They're not aware uh, of what God is doing. They are blind to what God is doing. It's like they're asleep, Paul says. Or it's like they're in a, in a, a drunken stupor where they're not really aware of what's going on around them. Paul says that, that that's what it means to, like, to be people who are are people who belong to the light is that we are attentive, we are aware, we have awakened to God's activity in the world. It's a great question. It's a great question to ask yourself. Like when it comes to God's activity in the world, when it comes to God's activity in your life, like am I awake or am I asleep? asleep? At least in this season. Am I awake or am I asleep? Am I attentive to what God is doing or am I missing what God is doing in the world? Am I missing what God is doing in my life? Do, do, I, do I take note of what God is doing? Do, do I record what God is doing in some way so that I that I will remember it and be aware of it? Do I tell other people where I see God at work in the world, where I see God at work in my life? Do I bear witness to it? Do I, do I testify to it? All of those things are about living these lives that have, that have awakened to the, to the activity of God in this world. Sometimes, even though we belong to the light, even though we're followers of Jesus, even though we made the decision to accept him as our savior, we've said yes to his forgiveness, yes to his grace, all that. Sometimes still, even though we belong to the light, we go through seasons, and I've gone through a season, I've gone through seasons like this, you probably have as well. Maybe you're going through one of these seasons right now because of some stuff that's going on in your life. We go through these seasons where we function like those who belong to the night. Like we belong to the light, that's our identity. That's who we are, but we function like those who belong to the night. We get so distracted that we just miss. We just miss what God is doing. It's not that God is not at work. It's not that God is not doing miraculous, amazing things. We just can't see it. So Paul says, stay alert. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. Put on hope as a helmet. Be attentive to the amazing things that God is doing in this world, the amazing things that God is doing in your life, even in the midst of what may be incredibly challenging circumstances, right? That's when it's hard. When we're in the midst of like incredibly challenging circumstances, it's just hard sometimes to be attentive, attentive to where God is at work. But God is at work. He's at work even in the midst of our most challenging and difficult circumstances. He is at work in the world. So Paul says, stay alert. Secondly, he says, those who belong to the light 
experience authentic community uh, or they experience, if you want to say real community, like the, the, those who belong to the light experience this incredible community. He says, now we ask you brothers and sisters to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work, live in peace with each other. Paul says that part of authentic community is living at peace with each other. The word there in Hebrew is shalom and shalom with each other. Shalom is not just, as some of you know, shalom is not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence, it's the presence of delight. Shalom is enjoying each other. Shalom is flourishing together. Shalom is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. I just got an ex- opportunity today after the first service to talk to a number of folks and to, and to weep with some folks who are weeping and to rejoice with some folks who are rejoicing. And, and Paul says, that's, that's shalom. Like that's what people of the light, people who belong to the light have the opportunity to do is to experience that in their lives. Then Paul talks about what healthy spiritual leadership looks like in a church that is experiencing authentic community. And he says this, he says, respect those who are over you in the Lord, those who admonish you, hold them in highest regard. Now, admonish there means basically to counsel. He says, hold those who, who counsel you in in highest regard. Paul's talking about those who serve the body by helping people in whatever way it is to grow in their faith. He, he doesn't, and, and what's interesting is that he doesn't list any specific titles here. He does that in some other passages when he talks about the church and he talks about those who've been given certain roles and certain positions, but he does it here. Here he's not talking about titles in the church, not talking about positions in the church. He's not talking about paid staff, he's not talking about pastors, he's talking about, he's talking about people who are a little bit further along in their journey of faith, a little bit more mature in their journey of faith than maybe you or I are at this point in our journey. And Paul says that our posture towards those in the body that are a little further along in their journey, that our posture should be a posture of humility, that we should do everything we can to try to learn from them, uh, allow them to, to speak into your life. That's what Paul is saying. Ask, ask questions. Uh, give them permission to ask you questions, even tough questions, even the accountability questions that sometimes you don't want anyone to ask. Like He's saying, no, 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 give, give permission for all, like respect those who are a little bit further along in their walk with Jesus than, than you are, that maybe, that maybe God can use them in some way to speak in to your life. Respect the role that they can play in helping you to grow in your faith. And then, so he's talking to all of us in the church about those who are a little bit further along in their journey, but then he turns the tables and he addresses the spiritual leaders. And this is what he says to the spiritual leaders. He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. 
encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. So Paul basically is saying to those who are in spiritual leadership, leading others, like pouring into the lives of someone else, is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. That different people need different things, depending on their personality, depending on their temperament, depending on their experience in life, depending on the things that they have gone through, all of those kinds of things. Paul says, and then he basically goes through, I mean, he could have, he could have gone through 20, 25, 30 things here, but he goes through five different kinds of folks in the church that maybe he, he saw when he was there, folks that fell into one of these four different categories. And then he says, you need to respond to like these folks in different ways. Like if you're in spiritual leadership, um, like folks need different things depending upon like their personality and their temperament. Like you can't respond to them all the same. Again, it's not a one size fits all. And then he kind of gives these four categories that he's aware of in the church. And then he tells them, here's how you should respond to that. So he says, uh, with those who are idle, in other words, they're not real motivated. Someone that's idle is not real motivated. They're just maybe kind of coasting through life. They're not quite sure what the next step is. They're not quite motivated to even try to find out what that is. All of that. Uh, He says, you need to warn them. That's his that's his exhortation. He says, you need to warn them. In other words, you need, to, you need to somehow light a fire under them. You need to help them find their passion. You need to help them find something that flicks their switch, some passion that is there that has been buried. You need to help them find that, light a fire under them so they can live out the calling that I have, that I have created them for. So he said, those who are idle, I want you to Warn them, light a fire under them. And then he says, for those who are timid, very different response. For those who are timid, you know, uncertain, fearful, hesitant, um, risk averse, not, not willing to take chances or not willing to take risks or maybe a little hard for them to step out in faith, all of that. He says, for those who are timid, encourage them. That's what they need. They, they don't need warning. They, they need encouragement. Speak words of affirmation over them. Acknowledge their fears, but remind them that they don't have to be defined by their fears. They don't have to be paralyzed by their fears. And then he said, um, for those who are weak, uh, you need to respond in a different way. Uh, not with encouragement in that way, not with warning, but with those who are weak, those who are maybe vulnerable, those who are disadvantaged in some way. Uh, He says, you need to practically help them. Like you need to do some practical things to help them in the midst of of their vulnerability. You need to advocate for them. You need to give them practical assistance, maybe some financial assistance, or maybe the gift of your time, mentoring them, pouring into them, connecting them with your network, helping them in some practical way. And then finally, he says, for those who are vengeful in the congregation, and that would be people that have been hurt 
by someone and maybe they feel like they need to settle the score, they need to, to get things even, all of that. He says, you need to help them pursue peace. You need to, to de-escalate the situation. You need to help them forgive. You need to help them to be loving and kind even to people who have not been loving and kind to them. So there's all of these different ways, he says, that spiritual leaders should respond to those that are kind of under their care that reflects their unique situation in life. And it's so incredibly applicable to everyone in spiritual leadership. Whether you're running a company, a department, whether you're running a small group, leading a small group, pastor of a church, running a ministry, or whether you're a parent, especially parents. It's a reminder that, that your kids need something different from you as a parent. And that requires different approaches with each child. That one child may need you to be more direct and maybe even more stern. And another child may need you to be less direct and more encouraging. That it's not a one size fits all. That every child needs a different kind of parent. And they're all named you. Like your kids, if you have more than one child, they all need different things because they're all very different people. I, I really, I, I was, you know, I've been thinking about just, you know, my own parenting and, and I've always felt like this was one of the areas where I struggled the most as a parent. And, and I think it was driven by, uh, I want to be fair to my kids. I want to be um, I want to treat them all the same. I want to treat them, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want them to compare how I do. I don't want to treat one person one way and one person another way. You know, this is my personality. This is how I respond. This is how I respond to, you know, um, them misbehaving. This is how I respond to them doing things that we told them not to do. This is how I respond. Like, I want to be completely like the same with each of them. And, and what I have realized over the years is that that's not, that's not what they needed because they were different people. That they needed different things from me depending upon their temperament, their personality, their experiences, their struggles, the things that they were dealing with that were unique. And that part of the genius, I think, of parenting and the genius of even leadership in general is to take the time to know the people that were leading or the, the people, our kids, to get, take the time to know them well enough that we know the unique response. And I know that we're all fearful about like comparisons and all of that. And I would just say, okay, when it comes to like giving gifts, yeah, treat them the same, okay? Like if you're giving $100 here, give $100 there. Like don't be so stupid and not do that. But when it comes to like how you respond to them, they don't need you to be the same. They need you to respond to them in different ways because they are different people. That's what Paul is talking about here. Thirdly, finally, those who belong to the light, they worship really well. They worship passionately. They worship really, really well. Look at what he says in verse 16 and following. He says, be joyful always. 
pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Now this section, um, as a whole, there's a lot of things in there, but this section as a whole is really all about worshiping well. But both when we gather together, like we're doing here, we come together and sing together and and, and, and look at God's word together and all of that. But also, like, when we go out from here and are worshiping with our very lives. Like, when scripture talks about worship, it's not just about when we gather together. It's about how we, how we live our lives. How we posture ourselves in relationship to God and to others, you know, the rest of the time when we're outside of this place. And Paul has some really, really helpful things to say about how we can worship well. Now, let me just say this. Everyone worships. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you believe in God, whether you don't believe in God, wherever you are in the spiritual spectrum, wherever you are in trying to figure out like what's true and what's right and all of that, like everyone worships. Everyone worships something. Everyone lives for something. Like some people worship power. Some people worship control. Some people worship approval and the pursuit of approval. Some people worship money. Some worship possession. Some people worship pleasure. Like everybody worships something. The question is not, are you a worshiper? Every person in the world is a worshiper. Every person in the world worships something. The question is, what do you worship or who do you worship? And Paul is calling us to worship God. So what should that worship look like? Well, Paul tells us. First of all, Paul says it should always be joyful. Be joyful always, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that our worship can't be filled with lament. Joy and sorrow can coexist together. Um, two sides of the same coin. Because joy is rooted in God's promise to always be with us. Like no matter what, God is with us even in the most devastating of circumstances. Which doesn't mean that the pain and the sorrow goes away. They don't, but neither does the joy. And it's not this fake joy, this inauthentic joy, these inauthentic smiles that deny the depth of the pain. It's a joy that is commingled with pain and sorrow. It's a joy in which pain and sorrow and joy are intertwined. They are inextricably connected. Both are present. Both are real. The joy does not eradicate the pain, the joy reminds us that God is present in the pain. Secondly, Paul says that we should give thanks, kind of a different take on that same idea. We should give thanks in all circumstances. He says, in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. And there's a really big difference. Because many of the circumstances we find ourselves in are because 
of our misuse of the freedom that God has given us or someone else's misuse of the freedom that God has given us. And you see that in stories throughout scripture, but you see that in Joseph's story in the Old Testament, right? Joseph was, was sold into slavery. He was taken away from his country. He was separated from his family. Uh, he was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison, all of that. And why did that happen? Because his brothers abused the freedom that they were given because they were jealous of him. But Joseph ends up rising to one of the highest positions in the land. He saves his nation. He saves his family. He restores his family. And eventually Joseph tells his brothers this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant to destroy me, God was able somehow to redeem it and work good out of it. Whatever terrible circumstances we are going through, God can redeem it. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. I love this passage. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's what allows us to give thanks in all circumstances. And then lastly, Paul says we should, part of our worship as, as people belonging to the light, part of our worship is that we should pray continually. And that doesn't mean that we are down on our knees 24 hours a day. It just means that we are constantly aware of God's presence, that we are inviting God into our conversations. We're inviting God into our decisions. We're inviting him into the things that we say, into the things that we do. It's a real relationship with someone who is always there, that there is this constant awareness to pray continually, is this constant awareness that everything that we do, everything that we say, every decision that we make, like God is there willing to, to be a part of that conversation, a part of that decision-making process. And prayer is not just about talking to God. It's also about hearing from God. And that's what Paul is reminding us of when he says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. God is always, he's reminding us that God is always trying to communicate with us. That's the thing about this, this whole statement of pray continuously is that sometimes we kind of, it, it feels kind of heavy and you say, man, I've got to be like consciously aware of bringing God into the conversation. And am I bringing God into this conversation? No, it's not, it's a two-way thing. So it's not just us talking to God, us seeking God's wisdom, God, us seeking God's direction. God is talking to us. God is trying to speak to us. God is trying to tell us things. God is trying to get through to us. And you know, do you know how much he does that or how often he does that? All the time. Like God is never, God is, God is never asleep when it comes to like trying to communicate himself to us. He is always trying to communicate himself 
to us. Whether we hear him or not, whether we are listening or not, whether we are paying attention or not, God is always at work, always at work communicating himself to us. That's why we can pray continuously because it's not just us and, and the initiative that we take in that relationship. It's the initiative that God takes in wanting to speak to us, in wanting to talk to us, in wanting to communicate himself to us. And God speaks to us in all different kinds of ways. That's what Paul is reminding us here. I mean, sometimes he speaks to us through a still small voice. And sometimes he yells at us. He screams at us through some circumstance that we are going through, hoping to get our attention. Sometimes it's through his word that he speaks to us. Sometimes it's through other people, through prophets and pastors and authors and speakers and friends. He speaks to us in this myriad of ways, this myriad of ways. And Paul says that those who belong to the light, they listen to his voice. So what is God saying to you? What is God saying to you? Maybe it's something that he's wanting you to do. Maybe it's something that he's wanting you to not do. Maybe it's something he's wanting you to say. Maybe it's a conversation that you've been procrastinating and he's saying to you, I want you to have that conversation. You need to have that conversation. Or maybe he's calling you to pull back your tongue and, and to maybe not speak about something that you want to say to someone but maybe would not say it in the way that reflected both truth and love. Maybe he's wanting you to pursue a certain relationship. Or maybe he's wanting you to not pursue a certain relationship says that you, you thought that was for you, but that really is not the relationship for you. Maybe he's wanting you to make a decision. Maybe he's wanting you to make a change. Maybe he's wanting you to take a risk that you have not been willing to take. To take a step of faith that you've not been willing to take. And, and what he's saying to you and has been saying to you because he is always communicating himself to us. He's, he's saying, I want you to take that step. Or maybe there's something that he is saying, I want you to lay that down. I want you to surrender that to me. I want you to let go of that. Whatever it is. What is God saying to you? 
are you listening? God, we are so thankful that you are a God who is at work in our lives and present in our lives all the time. We're thankful for our identity in Christ. We're thankful that we belong to the light, that we belong to this future that awaits us, but that in the meantime, we are able to to live as sons and daughters of the day, sons and daughters of the light. But we're thankful for the desire that you have to be in vibrant relationship with us. That you give us permission to express our feelings, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, all of that to you. And that you are are constantly pursuing us, speaking to us. Maybe even for some of us today, calling us to say yes to what you've done for us on the cross. So that our sins would be taken as far away as the east is from the west. Lord, we want to listen to what you are saying. And we want to say yes. Yes.